So look at verse 16. It says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the reason why they have to state that we did not follow cleverly devised myths is because there were false teachers there who were claiming that Peter and the apostles were following myths. Now, these were not people who were in the world, uh, not people who were looking outside of the world, saying that Christianity is not true, Christianity is not real. These are those who are within the congregation, within the body of Christ. They are rising up and saying that the Lord Jesus Christ is not coming back. And the apostles who believe that Jesus Christ is going to come back one day are following a bunch of myths. It's not true. It's not happening. Sadly, this this is not an uncommon thing in the New Testament. Paul refutes um, two men in 2 Timothy chapter 2 who who claim that the resurrection had already happened. You know, again, we see false teachers again and again throughout the scriptures. So they assert, we did not follow cleverly devised myths. Now think about this just for a second. Why would Peter and the apostles claim something that they know to be not true? What did they get for following Jesus Christ? Persecution, hardship, slander. Those who follow Jesus Christ, the Lord says, have no place to lay their heads. If you want to follow Christ, you have to pick up your cross daily and follow after him. So why would, would Peter and the apostles make something up only to bring hardship and rebuke upon their life? It doesn't add up. We know that Peter and the apostles all abandoned Jesus at the end of his life. They left him alone. But when he came back from the dead, their eyes were open, And they gave themselves to the calling of the gospel. They gave themselves to proclaim the gospel regardless of the cost. So you see men in, in before the resurrection, men who are uh, willing to, to, to abandon and betray Jesus. And yet after the resurrection, you see men who are, who are beaten who are jailed, and then they say, Praise be to God that I was counted worthy to suffer for the name. These same men are are being called out as those who are following myths. Look at what they said of why we are not following myths. So it says, When we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you remember when we looked at uh, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, the word coming, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, comes from the Greek word parousia. And that's the idea of the, the coming of the Lord, the, the advent, the first advent or the second advent of Christ. Now, we know all throughout the scriptures that we are waiting and longing for that day when Jesus Christ will return. Even what we do this morning in the Lord's Supper is we, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we look at what's happening in our world and we see the, the gross immorality, when we see the, um, the brokenness in people's homes, when we see the brokenness even of our own bodies, what we do is we say, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. I can't tell you how many times in, in, in my ministry, in this church, we have been dealing with something extremely difficult. A family has been ex- dealing with something extremely difficult. That on my way to or on my way from, from visiting that family, I have cried out in my car to God, Lord, come. Come. The pain is too much for these people. Come, Lord. Peter saying, the Lord is coming. 
the Lord is coming. Now, how does he know that? Look at the second half, verse 16. We did not follow cleverly devised myths, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. What Peter is remembering and reflecting is the transfiguration. Uh, Jesus just gave a, a powerful teaching, and he says that some of you will not die until you taste the coming of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is coming. You will not see, that you will not taste death until it comes. And then we read in the Gospel of, of Mark. If you want to go there, Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. This is important. Remember, we, the reason why I chose Mark's Gospel, almost, it's almost identical, Matthew, Mark, Luke. It's almost identical in terms of the language. But I'm choosing Mark's Gospel specifically because, if you know, Mark's Gospel is, is probably Mark writing through the, through, the, through the information and the lens of Peter. Uh, Peter probably gave Mark his information. So this is what Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, verses 1 through 13 says. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So specifically right there, Jesus says that some here who are listening to my voice are going to see the kingdom of God with power. And back to, to Peter. What does Peter say? He says, listen, we did not dev- follow cleverly devised myths about the coming and the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those, that same language. This is the, the, the happens in Mark chapter 9. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up high on the mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And, they were, and, then, and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, is it good that we are here? It is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead might mean. And they asked them, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first and restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things? And be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did whatever they pleased as it is written of him. So Jesus tells his disciples, says, listen, some of you here are not going to die until you see the kingdom of God in its power. And the very next thing we see Peter, James and John ascend the mountain with Jesus and then he is transfigured before him. He changes. His face is radiant. His clothes are are bleached white. I mean, this is a dramatic scene. They see the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, 
Don't tell anyone. Wait until I rise from the dead. And right here in First, Second Peter chapter 1, we see this coming to fruition. It says, listen, we were not following this. We saw His glory with our own eyes. We saw it. We saw Him transfigured before Him. We saw the radiance of His, of his face. We saw His power. That's a confirmation that the coming King will come in power. Jesus Christ will come again. Remember, He's writing to a church to encourage them to stand fast in the midst of false teachers to believe in the truth of the gospel, to hold fast to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Beloved, you are going to be challenged today, tomorrow, and every day you live in this world to not believe in the gospel. The world around us will tell you that this, what we believe in, what we hold fast to, is missed. Why are you believing in that? And yet we say we have eyewitnesses that saw his glory. We go on. Not only did they see his glory, they heard it. Verse 17, For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So normally we think about our senses, the five senses. You know, here you have two. You have sight. They, they saw it with their eyes and they heard it with their ears. Now, this was the second time that the voice came out of heaven. At Jesus' baptism, it, it almost is the same thing. The only difference between the, the baptism and the transfiguration is the, is the, the, the um, what's the word? One's in the, the first person and one's in the third person. What's that? Grammar people, it's late. It's Sunday. I've already preached three times. Help me out. So in the first, when Jesus was baptized, it says to Jesus, uh, the Father speaking to Jesus, says, you are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. And then in, in the transfiguration, it says, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Both those, that language is a reminder, a, a, for, a, a throwback to, um, to the, the Old Testament. So in, in, in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, we read, David is speaking about the, the, the Messiah, the one who is going to come. He says, I will tell you the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of your earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like the potter's vessel. So this idea of you are my son is a, is a, is a reminder of what happened in Psalm chapter 2. Isaiah 42.1 Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So what you see here is you see two references in the Old Testament that has almost the same language. You are my son and whom I delight. Now, those who were, were, were Jews, who were Israelites, would have known that the, 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 the references of the father speaking to the son confirm the Old Testament. And Peter's saying, listen, we have read about it. 
But we have seen it. It truly has happened. That's important. Because he's trying to encourage the people to hold fast to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. How are we going to endure hardship in this world? I mean, truly, how are we going to deal with with the hardship that we face? The reason why Christians can deal with hardship, however severe, is because of the hope of glory. Because of the glory that is coming for the Christian. So we read in Romans 8.18, our sufferings of the present time pale in comparison of the glory that will be revealed to those who know Christ. That's what's coming to us. So what Peter is worried about here is that the people are going to stop following Christ because they're going to believe those who say Christ is not coming back. Now, we live 2,000 years later. Right here, when this was happening, many thought that Christ was going to return rather quickly. You remember in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, the apostles, the disciples who walked with Jesus says, Jesus is now the time you are going to restore the kingdom of Israel. And he says, don't don't worry about the time. And then he sends them on, on mission to be his witnesses. Well, listen, this is only maybe 20, 30 years later after Christ had, 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 had ascended to heaven. And they would think, well, surely it's going to be this year. Another year passes. Well, surely this is going to be the year. And another year passes. With each passing year, guess what happens to the hearts of the people? They get more and more hopeless. It's like a a Cub fan. Right? We always say, wait till next year. And next year comes, and what do we say? Wait till next year. And a lot of of Cub fans are a hopeless bunch. We don't really have a, a whole real sense of hope. And that's what Peter's worrying about here for the church. He's worried that these folks are going to lose hope that Christ is actually coming. And if they they lose hope that Christ is actually coming, they may turn away from Jesus and follow the ways of the world. They may turn away from their only hope. And Peter's worried about that. That's why we read in in verse 11, "For For this way there will be a rich richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The ministry of pastors, the ministries of leaders in the church, is to make sure that God's people have a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when false teachers arise and they say things that make the people of God question the coming reality of the kingdom, you have to address it. This is what Peter's doing here. So the first you see this, the word of witnesses. Secondly, you see the words of writings. The word of writings. Look at verse 19. It says, end. So he's already confirmed with his witnesses. And now he's going to confirm with the word. And it says, end. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention. As to a light lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns. And the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy has ever been produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So think about what I just said about the the Scriptures 
that Peter may have been referring to in the Transfiguration. Psalm 2, which is a Messianic psalm, Psalm 2-7. Isaiah 42, verse 1, the, the, the servant in whom I delight. The one I didn't read is maybe Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 20, when it says that there's going to be a prophet who's going to arise from among the people like Moses. Then it says, listen to him, just like it says in the Transfiguration. And what Peter is saying here, do you remember all those prophecies that were written in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah? Do you remember all those prophecies? They confirm the reality of Christ. They say that the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Messianic Savior, is going to come again in power to bring in his kingdom. That's what the, the, the Bible says. That's what the Word of God says. So I, I don't think that he's trying to say is that we have, we've seen it, but the Bible is better than our testimony. Now I would say this. I do believe the Bible is better than, than the testimony of individuals. I think the Bible is the most important thing we have in this world. I often ask people this question. I say, if you could have a 30-minute a video of the, the crucifixion, or you could have the, the passage Luke 22, which would you take? And I think because we are in such a visual age, most people would say, I want the video. And yet, there's a lot of people who were there that day who did not end up in heaven. They saw it, but they did not know what it meant. And what the Bible does, the Bible tells us what those events mean. So I think the Bible is, 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 is priceless for our, for our faith. The Bible, and this is what, what, this is what Paul or Peter is saying. He said, listen, pay attention to the Bible. You see, you see it right there? And we have the, the prophetic word more fully confirmed, confirming all the things that were said, to which you will do well to pay attention. This is why you're here on Sunday night. You're here on Sunday night to pay attention to the word of God. This is why you were here at 9.45 for Sunday school. This is why you stayed for the 11 o'clock worship service, because you are paying attention to the Word. But look at those who are here tonight. Look at those who are, who are there on Sunday morning, and look and think about how many people are not there. How many people are not paying attention to the Word of God? If they're not paying attention to the Word, Do they think that Christ is coming back? They may think Christ is coming back, but they're not living as if that's true. The church in America are full of functional atheists. What I mean is there's a lot of people who claim the name of Christ, but they function in their lives as if God is not real. They function in their lives as if God is not going to come back and hold them accountable for how they live in this world. This is why Peter charged them to pay attention to how they live, so they will experience that rich welcome. This is what I was trying to get at this morning about Adam's silence. How many people do you know who are not living for the Lord, who claim the name of Christ, and instead of speaking, 
gently, humbly, patiently. We just are silent. Because it's easier for us. But it's not easier for them. And truthfully, it's not easier for you and me. Because one day, God is going to look at you and He's going to say, why didn't you say something? I gave you opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to speak into this person's life and you were silent. You know, Ezekiel talks about um, that we are watchmen on the wall. We are proclaiming the Word. And the Bible says is that if the watchman who is on the wall does not proclaim that an enemy's coming or that you're in danger, it says the blood is on your hands. But after you have announced that the enemy's coming and that you're in danger, you are free. And the blood returns to that person's hand and how they respond to it. Peter is concerned that they are not paying attention to the word. Because there, there's competing voices in the church. Those who are paying attention to the Word of God. Those who are holding fast to the true knowledge of Christ. And then you have those who are teaching some things that are false. There are two voices in the church today. Maybe not in our church. But there are voices going on in the Christian church in America that are contrary to one another. Which one is true? The one that holds this. And y'all, in our political season, people are going to show what they really believe. People are going to show what they really believe and what they really trust in. We have to be careful that we are not led astray by false teachers. For we have this word. Look at verse 19 again. It says, we have this prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Flashlights are important when you go camping. For a reason. Bring a light that helps you see in the darkness. And what is, what is Peter saying? This is our light. When we walk out in darkness, this gives us light to see things as they really are. Until... Driving back to that first point, until the day dawns, until the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ happens, until that day dawns, and the morning star rises in your heart. Now this may be an allusion to um, Numbers 24. Numbers 24:17 says that um, I see Him speaking of the Messiah but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Peter could be alluding to the fact that Jesus calls himself the morning star in, in Revelation. Could have been alluding to the, the, to the Messiah being called the, the star. But I think what, he, what he's probably aiming at here is that when God's people see Christ coming in his power, we are filled with joy. At his return. We, we don't have to shrink back when he comes. We, we rejoice. That's why I love it as well so much. Right? That last stanza is so powerful. The trump shall resound. And the Lord shall descend. 
Even so, it is well with my soul. So even when the the clouds are rolled back and the Lord descends, it is well with my soul and I welcome His coming. Why? Because I know Jesus. I trust in His death and His resurrection as my only hope on that day. So when God looks at me, He sees me covered in in the, the blood of the Lamb. I'm washed. I'm forgiven. I'm blameless. I'm holy in His eyes. Not because of anything that I have done, but simply because of His glory. Is that you? Are you waiting His coming, not with, not with fear, but with anticipation? Because you know that you've been cleansed by the cross. You have been forgiven in Christ. You have been made holy and blameless in His eyes. That's what He wants them to pay attention to. Because that is going to get us through the day of trouble. Verse 20. Knowing this, first of all, Now, these two verses, verses 20 and 21, if you want to teach anyone about the the doctrine of Scripture, why Scripture matters, you're going to find it in verse 20 and 21. Uh, We see verse 20, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. So the meaning of the Bible is not pulled out of someone's own mind. Uh, We know that, we'll get here in a second, but people can't understand the Bible unless the Spirit of God reveals it to them. Uh, The Spirit of God reveals not only the writing, but the interpretation, the correct interpretation of Scripture. And then verse 21. This is where we get our doctrine of inspiration, how we got our Bible, right right here in verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. You know, I work with a lot of college students, and a lot of college students always ask me the question, who wrote the Bible? How did we get the Bible? Uh, We're going to have a... um, uh, an apologetics conference here in April, uh, April 22nd, and Devin, I think, is going to talk about the reliability of the New Testament, maybe. God and science, all right? Someone is going to talk about the reliability of the New Testament there, because what people are dealing with, young people especially, is how do we got the Bible? What, what we hear from the secular point of view is that the Bible is just made up by a bunch of men. Men just chose which books to believe in. How can you really think that that is the Word of God? Why is this book the Word of God, and, 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 or this uh, letter and not that letter? People, people doubt the Bible all the time. And what does it say right here? It says, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Man did not write the Bible, primarily. It was, it was inspired by the very mind of God. A couple of years ago, my pastor my old pastor was meeting with, uh, he was in Scotland, and uh, he was preaching at, at, at a pastor's conference. And someone came up to him afterwards and says, hello, sir, um, I'm going to plant a church. He goes, oh, that's great. Let me tell me about your church. He says, well, I'm going to plant a church based only on the red-letter words of Jesus in the New Testament. He kind of looked at him for a second. He says, but you, you do know that the entire Bible is the word of Jesus, Right? He goes, well, no, the only, only, only the words of Jesus in red in, in, my, in my Bible, that's what I'm going to base my church off. He's like, he just kind of smiled and nodded, and then he's like, he tells me the story and just says, he doesn't understand the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation is the word of Jesus. So when you read the red letters in Luke chapter 6, <laughs> they're the words of Jesus. When you read Genesis chapter 3, as we did this morning, those are the words of of Jesus. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along 
by the Holy Spirit. So that's the doctrine of inspiration right there. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we believe that the Bible was written by men, by their personality. So when you read Matthew's Gospel and you read Luke's Gospel, they read differently because God used their personality, their, uh, their pen, their life, their, um, their person through the Holy Spirit to write a perfect word for God's people. Peter and Paul, they read differently. John reads very differently than Mark. God wrote through their personality. So men spoke from God, carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is what we believe in, divine inspiration. So the difference between a Baptist church versus a Catholic church. A Catholic church says that tradition and the Bible are on par. And maybe, in some cases, the, the tradition is, is above the Bible. Well, the, the Baptist church and true evangelical, biblical, Christ-centered churches would say that the Word always trumps. The Word always goes ahead of tradition. The Word of God is primary because of verses like this. Well, let me give you four implications of divine inspiration. Four implications of divine inspiration, and then I'll close. First, the Bible is alive. The Bible says in Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. When we read the Bible, when we pay attention to the word, as Peter is exhorting us to do, we are changed. The Bible speaks to us. Those of you who have been born again by the Spirit of Christ, you have been reading the Bible at one point in your life, and you have been convicted of your sin. Or you have been encouraged to, to, trust, to, to trust in God's, to God's promises. You've been encouraged to forgive someone in your life. The Bible changes you because it is alive by the Spirit. Second implication, the Bible is true and without error. The Bible is true and without error because it comes from God. Psalm 12:6. The words of the Lord are pure words, and silver refined in a furnace, and the ground purified seven times. Psalm 119, 160. And the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. We should have confidence in the Bible. It's perfect. It's beautiful. Now, that doesn't mean that all our interpretations are perfect because we're fallible. We, we, we looked at the fall this morning. One of the effects of the fall is, is the effects of the mind. We don't always think clearly because our minds have been affected by the fall. But the Bible is true. Let us hold fast to it. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit is essential for understanding Scripture. 1 Corinthians 2.14 the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to them. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So you can have someone read the Bible, understand their meaning, and not be changed by it. That happens sometimes on a Sunday. You may have a visitor come, and they hear the word spoken. They hear the, the doctrine of the atonement read, as we talked about the, the, the Jesus Christ coming and dying in our place, and 
that when Rich read it today in Romans 5, 12 through 21, the, the new Adam of Christ, the, the salvation he offers, someone could read that, understand what it means, and not be changed. Because the Holy Spirit has to open their eyes. This is one of the reasons why if we want God to move in our church, we have to pray. Pray for the preaching of the Word. Pray that people's hearts and their eyes will be opened when they come to our gatherings. If we are not a people of prayer, we will not be effective for the gospel of Christ. We must pray. Fourthly, the Bible is authoritative. John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Here's the... Here's where the rubber meets the road in the Christian life. When God speaks, do you listen? It's really that simple. If you are a true believer in Christ, when God speaks, you listen. Period. This word is so precious. It it, it protects us. It guards us. It gives us joy and delight. So my encouragement to you would be the same encouragement Peter gave to the church 2,000 years ago. Pay attention to this word. It would do you well to pay attention to the word of God. And I am so thankful that many of you here do that faithfully week in and week out. So let's pray that we can expand this room. That we can put more people in these pews who pay attention to the word so that one day, when the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts, that there will be many alongside us rejoicing in the coming of our King in power and glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you. We thank you. We thank you for your word. Help us pay attention to your holy word. Dear God, we love you. We thank you so much for the grace of this night. We pray that we would walk in obedience to you. Help us, Lord. Do what your word says. For our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.